0: It's Friday, 20th of January, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. I'm joined by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. Coming up, we'll be getting the latest on housing downturns and whether they could prompt rate cuts in advanced economies. But first, Neil, I wanted to turn our attention to Davos. It's everyone's favourite Alpine talking shop. It's been running all week. And if it's notable this year, it's because the theme is cooperation in a fragmented world. That's contributed to this avalanche of press coverage, and it's been helped along by this new IMF study, and it's all warning about this idea of what people are calling fragmenting, that the gains of globalisation stand to be lost, and that a much more difficult picture for the global economy will emerge from, from all of that. It dovetails with something we've been warning clients about since last year, namely this idea that we're facing a very different macroeconomic and market environment than we've gotten used to over the past few decades. It's something we've been calling economic fracturing. It's based on a project that we released last October. I was wondering if you could start by giving us an elevator pitch for what we mean when we talk about economic fracturing.
1: Yes, I mean, you're right. The cooperation of Fragmented World and the IMF's work on geoeconomic fragmentation, as they've called it, there's strong echoes of the work that we did last year on what we called fracturing. I think to understand what we're talking about when we talk about fracturing, you need to wind the clock back several decades to the era of globalization, which there's now a broad consensus that that's over, but it's less clear what is going to follow. Some people think there's going to be a period of deglobalization, which is what we had in the interwar period in the 20th century after the first wave of globalization. Our view is that we get this period of fracturing. And the reason for that is that the period of globalization was driven by this belief that if through economic integration, by bringing China and the former Eastern Bloc countries, and for that matter, Latin America into the global fold, that you make those economies more liberal, you make them perhaps even more democratic, but you make them essentially more like the US and Europe. That was the whole idea behind the, the Washington Consensus, the, the drove policy in the 1990s. These countries would emerge as a strategic partner was the idea. Clearly, that's not worked out, and China, in particular, has emerged as a strategic rival to the U.S. So that's what's, I think, underpinning fracturing. It's the idea that geopolitics is back as a driver of policy choices in the world and economic outcomes. And what that means in the context of globalization is that the world is fragmenting or fracturing, as we've said, into different blocks, rival blocks. One that coalesces around the U.S. and another that coalesces around China and the policy choices within those blocks are increasingly dictated by geopolitical considerations.
0: Predictions about how this post-globalization era will shape up, they run from those who see fragmenting or fracturing as as this sort of faddish response to current headlines and actually the forces of globalization still on track. And then at the other end, you have this idea that US China competitions put the world on a very dangerous track that's reminiscent of of the 1930s or or perhaps the late 19th century either way it winds up in a very dark place can you talk through our take on where where we sit on that spectrum of prediction
1: yes well once again the lens of geopolitics is really useful here i think it helps to bring some clarity to the analysis when you're thinking about what the outcomes are so if you take the start from the position that geopolitics is driving policy choices in each of these blocks, I don't think there's any reason to think that fracturing will result in a period of deglobalization. There's no good reason why, for geopolitical reasons, the US and Europe would stop buying soft furnishings, toys, many consumer goods from China. You wind the clock forward a couple of decades, I'm sure that the U.S. and others will will still be importing those type of goods from China. But for geopolitical reasons, there are reasons to think that economic ties will be severed in other areas. So, for example, if you think about what's happening in biotech or technology more generally, I think there will be a severing of ties there. Some financial relationships, I think there'll, there'll be a severing of ties too. High-tech and high-end engineering goods. I think anything with a large technological component or intellectual property component and with national security implications. I think there would be reasons to think that the relations between the US bloc and China and ties between the US bloc and China bloc in those areas could be severed.
0: So if you're sourcing kitchen furniture from China, you probably won't notice it much. But if you're a, a semiconductor equipment manufacturer, and you're trying to sell to China, you're very much going to be caught up in the the risks around fracturing and the pressures around fracturing just to take a step back though um at the heart of this project there was this effort i think across the whole team of our, our 70 strong team of economists involved in this effort of drawing up these these two blocks of, of us and china aligned economies uh, and the process ran through trying to work out whether countries were aligned with the U.S. or China blocs, whether they lean towards the U.S. or China blocs, or whether they are actually clearly unaligned. Can you talk a little bit about the composition of these blocks and, and why the composition is so important when we are discussing the post-globalization era?
1: Yes, I think this is one of the aspects that, that's been missing from the recent debate. As you said, it's been framed around fragmentation. It was the theme of Davos. It's been the theme of a significant IMF paper over the past week, but the assumption at least in a lot of the narrative, is that the world is basically fracturing down the middle. It's splitting down the middle. What our analysis last year laid bare was that that's not the case. We looked at everything from trade ties to financial ties to political and geopolitical ties that we, we scored through voting records at the UN, for example. And all of that enabled us to start to allocate countries between the China bloc and the US bloc so we could see which which way... Countries were likely to fall, whether they fall into the kind of US orbit or the China orbit. And what that revealed really was that the world isn't splitting down the middle. The US block, in terms of just size of GDP, is much larger than the China block. Trade within the US block is much more significant than trade within the China block. So the China block is both smaller, but is also dominated to a far greater extent by China itself. And what's more, the diversity, the economic diversity within the US block, is much more significant than the economic diversity within China block. China block is basically China, and and many many commodity producers. Whereas the US block takes in most of Europe, Mexico, Vietnam, other parts of Southeast Asia, Korea, parts of Latin America too. So there's a lot of economic diversity in the in the US block. And that's really important because it leads you to different consequences of fracturing. If you thought the world was splitting down the middle, then you could plausibly come up with scenarios in which, for example, the internationalization of the renminbi starts to challenge the dollar's position. But because the US bloc is so much more significant economically, that helps to, for example, entrench the position of the dollar. And we've talked about that on previous podcasts. Moreover, greater economic diversity within the U.S. block, I think it allows countries within that block to kind of flex and adapt to the challenges posed by fracturing. So if supply chains need to to move for national security reasons out of China, the U.S. doesn't need to reshort them to the U.S. It can move them to Vietnam, it can move them to Mexico, it can move them to other countries, other low-cost centers that align with the U.S. So that leads you to a conclusion, for example, that you're not going to see a big wave of reshoring of manufacturing jobs to the US as a result of fracturing. So the size and composition of these blocks really matters.
0: And can you talk a bit about what global growth looks like in a fractured world? Because as you mentioned, this IMF paper, and it, it models a number of scenarios for how the global economy will perform in a fractured world. And its worst case scenario talks about a 7% hit to, to global GDP. What's our view on, on this take? I know you've talked just now about the composition of blocks and why it's important in terms of the countries that are sitting in the US or, or China blocks. But in looking at the global economy in aggregate, how will it perform in a fractured world? Well, I think one of the
1: challenges is that when you look at the global economy in aggregate it masks some of the important and most consequential outcomes of fracturing I think I think the other point here is there's different forms of fracturing in our reports last year we assumed a relatively benign form of fracturing whereas I say economic ties are severed in some areas particularly areas like high tech and some financial areas but you know the US and Europe continues in your example to buy kitchen supplies from from China for the seeable futures so there's not this big reorganization of of trade ties now you can envisage some a much more malign outcomes of fracturing one would be a much greater schism between the us block and the china block as tensions really escalated and became more hostile taiwan's is, you know, one potential flashpoint among many the other point is that the us block itself may not hold if we had done this analysis four years ago where president trump was putting steel tariffs and tariffs on the european autos then you could see a world in which ties between the us and europe had weakened but the war in ukraine has changed that and the composition of the political makeup in the us has changed that a bit as well so there's lots of different ways that fracturing can play out in a less benign way than we have assumed but in our central scenario frankly the, yeah, there is a hit to global gdp growth because there's a At the margin, less trade than there otherwise would have been. There's less exchange of ideas, there's less innovation and so on and so forth. But it's pretty marginal for the US block. And it's likely to be, we think, swamped by other factors. And indeed, there may be some winners within that block if, to the extent they gain from the relocation of supply chains. In the China block, it's very different, I think, because, as I said before, there's less ability to adapt to the challenges posed by fracturing within the China block. And China itself, we already start to see enormous strains on a centralised growth model and fracturing will add to those strains. So I think the challenges to China itself are much greater from fracturing. That's embedded in our view that potential GDP growth in China is in a structural slowdown and that will get to as low as kind of 2% by the end of this decade.
0: You talked about less favorable outcomes just now. I was wondering if we could end this talking about potentially benign outcomes. There have been notable signs of warming U.S.-China ties in recent weeks slash months. Uh, Liu He, who's Xi Jinping's man on the economy, met Janet Yellen, U.S. Treasury Secretary in Davos, and had what seemed to be a fairly friendly meeting. Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, he's going to China early next month to meet his counterpart, Xinjiang. Uh, and it all comes off this this Xi-Biden meeting in Bali last November, which appeared to be a very deliberate attempt to reset the bilateral relationship, turn it off and turn it back on again almost. Clearly, the two sides are making an effort to stop things from getting worse. How does that fit into our understanding or our concept of global economic fracturing?
1: Well, I think if you just think about the the consequences as I've just laid out for the different blocks that helps to inform I think what's going on here one interpretation of recent events is that actually there's been a change of heart at the top of the Chinese leadership and that relations between the. US and China will continue to warm everyone's going to step back from the brink and and indeed fracturing will in the jargon, turn out to be a nothing burger. I think actually there's a different interpretation that we would make, which is that actually the fundamental goals here of the Chinese leadership and indeed the fundamental drivers of of fracturing have not gone away. China has still emerged as a strategic rival to the US rather than a strategic partner and will continue to be a strategic rival and viewed that way indeed in Washington. So I don't think the fundamental drivers of, of fracturing have gone away. Perhaps instead, the Chinese leadership have reconsidered the pace at which the world was appearing to, to fracture, in part because of the vulnerabilities within China's economy. I've already t- touched upon how China's perhaps less able to adapt to some of the challenges posed by fracturing than the US, but there's also other problems within China's economy at the moment too. The property sector, we've talked about on this podcast before, the opening up from zero COVID and some of the challenges posed there, and the global economic downturn, and the pressures that places on China's export sector. So I think... all that together, there's a sense that things are moving, perhaps escalation slightly too quickly. China needs to buy a bit more time. That's helped to cool some tensions, and we've had this warming of relations. But I don't think the fundamental drivers of of fracturing have, have really gone away.
0: That was Neil Shearing on global economic fracturing, and I'll post our dedicated page on the subject in the show notes and on the podcast page. Neil's back next week when we'll be previewing the first policy rate decisions of the year from the Fed, the ECB, and the Bank of England. Now, last week we posted a special episode featuring our property team talking about the outlook for housing and commercial markets this year. How property downturns play out is going to have huge implications for how advanced economies fare and how their central bankers respond. Vicki Redwood is our senior economic advisor and she's been tracking potential macro vulnerabilities from housing since before rates started to rise. Her latest report brings clients up to speed on what housing market downturns are doing to economies and how they can inform when central banks pivot. Here's a chat she had about that report with Chief Global Economist Jenny McKeown on Thursday 19th. And Vicky starts by highlighting what the recent data have to say about how housing markets are faring.
2: Yeah, we've had more negative news this week, including falls in house prices in Canada and the UK. And I think generally the news on housing is becoming pretty negative now. I think it helps to think of countries in three camps. So you've got the first camp where housing downturns are most advanced. And that includes Canada, Australia, New Zealand and Sweden. And prices in those countries have been falling for pretty much about a year now. And prices there are down between 7 and 15% from, from their peak. So those, those housing downturns are pretty well advanced. But I think we've got a second group of countries where housing downturns have have started a bit more recently. House price falls so far have been fairly modest, and that includes the US, UK and Germany. And then we've got a, a third group of countries where we haven't actually seen any drop in house prices yet. But I wouldn't be surprised if we started to see falls before long. And that might include some of the European countries where housing markets are looking fairly vulnerable, given the overvalued level of house prices there or their high share of, of variable rate mortgages in, in lending. So countries that we flagged are Austria, Portugal and the Netherlands. So perhaps focusing on that that
3: first group that you mentioned where we've already seen house prices falling for, for a year. Are we near the end now? Is there still overvaluation in these markets or are we going to see further falls to come and, and just how far might prices fall in those economies where declines are just getting started?
2: Um, I think generally we are still only part way through these these housing downturns, even in those countries where the downturns are more advanced and we've seen bigger price falls already. I think one reason for that is that it, it takes time for rises in interest rates to feed through. And that's especially the case in countries where there's been more of a shift to fixed mortgage interest rates in recent years, which has therefore slowed the pass through of monetary tightening into the housing market. And that includes some countries like the UK and, and Spain, where fixed rate mortgages have become more prevalent than they were in the past. And so that's perhaps one reason to think that that there's still more house price falls to come. Another reason is, is just the sheer level of overvaluation in some of the markets. Now, during the pandemic, we saw these big rises in house prices, which is obviously a bit surprising given you had economies tanking. But those price rises reflected partly the the big drops in interest rates we saw, partly households deciding that they were willing to devote a bit more of their money towards space after the the effect of lockdowns. And partly because the generous government support we saw in a lot of countries meant that some households, particularly the better off ones, suddenly had this extra rise in saving from the government stimulus and that that could fund higher housing deposits. So those are all reasons why we saw house prices actually rise quite strongly during the pandemic. And now we've seen these recent house price falls start to reverse part of those rises, but they have still only reversed parts. And so if you look at measures of housing valuation, be that price to income ratios or affordability indices, these are generally still quite high and suggest that there's certainly still scope for prices to fall further. So the short answer to your question is that, yes, there's still house price falls to come in, in pretty much all of these countries, we think.
3: There are some some difficulties here, aren't there? I know at the moment, given that we've had this shift from, from variable rates to fixed rates in a lot of the economies where we've historically seen kind of immediate falls in house prices as policy's been tightened, it, it's become a bit more difficult to judge just how housing markets will respond to policy tightening. But what I'm hearing from you is that we think, you know, as mortgages are refinanced, uh, that, that we are going to see some further decline in rates. So I guess the big question is, If by the time mortgages are being refinanced, policy rates are starting to come down, does does that mean that we can avoid some of this pain altogether, do you think? I know it's very difficult to judge.
2: Yeah, I think that's an interesting dimension in all this, actually. How how quickly are policy rates going to turn around and come back down? And as you say, if we've got households who are on, say, five-year fixed rates, took out five-year fixed mortgage rates in the last year or two, as you say, maybe by the time that they come to refinance, actually... Policy rates and mortgage rates have come all the way back down again, and they therefore avoid that payment shock. So the picture differs by country for sure. So it depends on you know, what share of households are on fixed rate mortgages, what the average term of those fixed rates are, and then how quickly policy rates are going to come down in those countries, because we think that, that policy rates will come down quicker in, for example, the US than Europe. So, you need to take all those things together. And it may well be, if central bankers change their policy direction quite quickly, that we can avoid particularly sharp housing downturns. I would flag, though, that there are risks in the other direction. You know, we don't know exactly what impact higher interest rates are having and going to have on the wider economy. So, I think a big uncertainty in all this is what happens to labour markets. Now, we know labour markets so far have been pretty resilient, but if unemployment starts to rise in response to lagged response to higher interest rates and that starts to prompt a rise in in arrears and for sellers etc then that could add to the downward pressure on housing markets and mean that maybe our forecasts for further house price falls are actually too timid.
3: Yeah okay so our, our forecasts offer relatively modest increases in the unemployment rate aren't they so I mean if anything so far the data suggests that labour markets are being even more resilient than we would thought, but we know that labor market indicators are coincident rather than leading. It's unlikely that they would be turning around quite so quite so quickly at the early stage of, of recession. So we are still expecting unemployment rates to pick up a bit. That's part of what's driving these further falls in house prices. But as you rightly point out, Vicky, if the rise in unemployment rates is is sharper, is more like those that we've seen in, in previous recessions. In advanced economies, then one of the key risks of that must must come from housing markets. So, in in some countries, at least, house prices have fallen enough to start having effects on the real economy, and that's what your most recent note talks about. Could you could you talk us through the the channels for that? I know there are lots of different channels and some quite complicated channels through which housing markets affect real economies. Maybe maybe starting with the, the most direct effect, which I guess is on construction activity.
2: Yeah, the most immediate and direct effect is probably on construction activity and in-house building. And unsurprisingly, that is where we've seen the most concrete evidence of, of these housing downturns having some effect. If you look, for example, at residential investment as a share of real GDP, that's fallen most sharply in Canada, which is what you'd expect given the housing downturn there has been deepest and most advanced. And it's also fallen relatively sharply in Australia against a country where you've had... Quite a big housing downturns so far and some modest falls in some other countries. And I think if you look at the more forward-looking indicators, they point to further falls in construction activity in most countries as well. Now, they don't suggest that construction activity is about to fall off a cliff, but we've seen some softness in, for example, building approvals in Australia and New Zealand, in residential building permit issuance in, in Canada. Those sort of leading indicators do point to a bit more weakness. And the the Pictures perhaps most downbeat in, in the US, actually, where you've seen house builder confidence drop particularly sharply. And that points to a much lower level of housing starts in the coming months.
3: What about the consumer spending angle, Vicky? You've explained how in a lot of countries there's been this shift towards more fixed rates, which has shielded some households from the effects. We've also got resilient labour markets, which again are here shielding households to some to some extent. Does that mean that there's been no real impact on consumer spending so far from these falls? in-house prices or can we tell?
2: You're starting to see some effect. Probably it's not as clear cut as the impact on construction activity. I think there's a couple of ways in which housing downturns can affect consumer spending. So one is when fewer households are moving house, when housing activity drops, then you're having just less money spent on people buying new furniture, new carpets, all that sort of thing, new appliances. And yeah, alongside falling house prices we have seen housing transactions fall in in most countries other than the UK actually so far at least and household goods sales they haven't been fantastic recently they've been relatively lacklustre but I must say we haven't seen particularly sharp drops in response to to this weakness in housing activity but given the time lags involved I'd say that we probably will see some weakness in those sectors start to come through in the coming months. You've then got some more potentially more general effects on household spending from from housing downturns just by the impact on consumer confidence, prompting households to feel a bit less wealthy as the value of their house goes down for those homeowning households. And that might prompt them to spend a bit less. And normally you would expect to see that reflected in a rise in household saving rates. Now, recently, household saving rates have actually been falling, but it's a bit difficult to disentangle what's going on with household saving rates at the moment, because obviously, you've got the impact of rising energy prices and the drop in household incomes, which will be making it harder of households to save more money. So it's a bit hard to disentangle all the different factors that are affecting household saving. But I think looking ahead, these housing downturns will either prompt or contribute to household saving rates rising a little bit, or at the very least, act as a barrier to them falling much further from their current levels.
3: What about interest rates though, Vicky? It's a bit circular here. We've talked about the implications of uh, of higher interest rates for house prices and for consumer spending. But what about the implications of these falls in house prices for interest rates? Could it be that the falls in house prices themselves stop policymakers in their tracks? Or are they going to carry on regardless as they have so
2: far? Well, central banks have kept raising interest rates so far, despite the fact that as we've discussed, there have been fairly sizable house price falls already in, in some countries. So I think the focus of central banks is still very much on quashing inflation. And if that means a bit of collateral damage in terms of weaker housing markets along the way, then then so be it. That's a price they're willing to accept. Um, now, things might get a bit different if we started to see really sharp housing market downturns and housing crashes a- across countries that could then potentially have a much bigger adverse impact on the real economy and therefore inflation. But for now, I don't think that housing downturns are going to stop central banks from raising interest rates as far as they think they need to, to get consumer price inflation back down. Now, one question, though, is once central banks are fairly confident that inflation is on its way back down, and they've done enough, could these housing downturns perhaps prompt them to start cutting interest rates sooner than they would otherwise have done? And I do think that is possible. And that's one reason why we think that um, interest rates could start falling again fairly quickly in some countries, including those where housing downturns are likely to have been the sharpest.
3: Okay, interesting. So it may be that that housing markets are actually key to the pivot points in interest rates and perhaps in those economies where wage growth is stickier. That's where the, the risks of tighter policy for longer are highest and where you might see even even house price falls and sharper increases in interest rates in the future.
2: Yeah, so that might suggest that in Europe, for example, where we think that inflation might be a bit stickier and there are still some housing markets that we think are, are vulnerable to falls, maybe their interest rates will stay high for long enough that house prices will start to fall in those countries. Whereas on the other hand, you've got countries like Canada and Australia, where we think uh, interest rates will start to fall a bit more quickly.
0: And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe via Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our website, capitaleconomics.com, has all the research referenced in this episode and much, much more. So take a look at that. But until next week, goodbye.